0: Hi, I'm Nick Martinez, and I'm Julian Boney, and we are the host of Giving Space, where we explore the lives and careers of people of color and discuss issues facing our communities. Happy New Year's, everybody. Welcome back to Giving Space Podcast. Uh, today, we are joined with Dr. Tahira West, and I'm going to be talking about her experiences as a pediatric resident. How are you doing, Tahira?
1: I'm doing good thank you guys for having me
2: yeah thank you for joining us
0: so tahira uh can you give us a brief description of who you are and what you do
1: yeah so i'm dr tahira west uh, i'm originally from atlanta but i did my medical training at the medical college of georgia and now i'm in a residency at advocate children's hospital in uh oakland illinois so it's about um not even 20 minutes uh kind of southwest of chicago um and as a resident basically i'm learning all things pediatrics so medical school basically preps you for you know deciding what you want to do in the medical field and now i'm further specializing as a resident so um all things kids uh, basically baby adults. Uh, if you're talking about the range in the spectrum of newborns to the teenagers. Uh, so I really enjoy what I do.
0: All right. So first off, did you always intend to become a doctor?
1: I wouldn't say always, you know, as a kid, you have your, you know, your, your daydream job that you always want to do. So when I was much younger, I actually wanted to be a, a, a author and illustrator but that that changed when I realized I couldn't draw so I would have been upset that I couldn't illustrate my own books so that that dream went away pretty quickly um at the art class but no I really uh when I got to high school uh decided on the doctor route and it was really my mom who uh pushed me to really pursue that route when I was thinking about it just because uh, I was caught between being a vet and a doctor, uh, a, pe- a pediatrician. I always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician, but uh, it was really the decision between treating animals and treating kids that uh, made me uh, have my mind in a, in a wrap. And yeah, my mom, she pushed me really hard on Dr. route.
2: So um, would you say that you were always kind of a STEM person? Like you, Enjoyed science classes and and kind of all of the the sciencey aspects of what you learn in in high school. And...
1: Yeah, I would say that. So I knew one, I love science, and two, I love kids. So I think ultimately my decision on pediatrics came from uh, that love of science more so than um, than anything else. Just because I knew whatever I probably would have ended up doing would have involved kids, whether it was a teacher or, I don't know, some counselor, or psych, like working with kids, uh, just because I grew up in more of an underserved area. Uh, and I knew that our access to healthcare in Southwest Atlanta uh, was not that great. And there's only one large level one kind of trauma center in the Atlanta area. So, um, And I knew science was an area that I thrived in. That I could do well, and and basically being a doctor combines both both those things: working with kids and sciences.
2: What would you say your your sort of science experiences were when you were in high school, and and do you feel like they they helped you or prepared you for the science that you were going to experience once you got to college?
1: Mm, that's a yes and no right there, because you yeah. know in high school you kind of. <laughs> You know, in high school, it's like the biology and, uh, you know, I think I took, you know, some chemistry, but I feel like the level that you get in college is just completely, I I don't know if there's any way I would have been as prepared for it compared to high school. You know, I, I feel like high school was more of the fun science where you could, you know, we were, I remember dissecting like a pig's leg or something in ninth, ninth grade or 10th grade, um, and just having fun with science and learning about ecology, bi- biology, anatomy. Uh, and then I just felt like once I got to college, things were more serious, but that might have been my own inflation, just knowing that I wanted to be a doctor. And this is now the time my GPA in college is what's going to determine how well. I pursue this, this goal of becoming a doctor. So maybe it just felt more serious in college, even though it was still similar things, just a little bit more in depth and detailed.
0: Oh, uh, Tahira, I know you personally. <laughs> and I I know the the long journey that, that you went through and getting to where you are. Um, so would you mind describing your undergrad and graduate school journey?
1: Yeah, so I went to undergrad at Penn State uh, and I was actually a mathematics major at Penn State. So I started off coming in knowing that I wanted to be a doctor. And I thought like probably most people that you had to be a biology major, a chemistry major, some pre-med track. But um, I also, Always loved mathematics, and even when I was in high school, I was on the math team. Uh, I really um, uh, enjoyed math, and once I finally met with the counselor who told me you didn't have to be a biology major to go to into med school, uh, that was when I kind of switched off after my freshman year, and and um, I definitely rode the struggle bus <laughs> in terms of just the workload. Uh, And I would tell anyone that when you go to med school or pursue this track, it's more so your work ethic. That's the biggest part. Like it's a lot of information, especially when you go to medical school, it's a lot of information in a short amount of time. And so you really have to be diligent and have good, good work, a good work ethic to to make it far because the material isn't necessarily hard of course everyone has subjects that they like more than others and that comes with anything you know you're doing chemistry physics biology anatomy like you're bound to have something that you don't get that doesn't necessarily come to you easy uh but as far as overall it's stuff that can be learned and some of it is rote memorization when you're coming when it comes to uh, say, memorizing medications and how medications work. Like a lot of it is memorization, some of it's physiology, um, but it's definitely the challenge for me was finding the right way to study the material uh, and, and learning how to uh, to adapt and change from, how I studied in, in, in undergrad was different than how I needed to study once I got to medical school and so I think that navigating that is probably the hardest part is finding what works. But once you have it, you can you can definitely thrive uh, in this career.
0: As you mentioned, uh you graduated undergrad with a math mathematics major, right? And you again pursuing pursuing the doctor track. A lot of people, like you said, would assume, oh, you need to be biology, some sort of science like that, uh, pre-med track type thing, how how did you manage to figure out that you were able to take this path to still achieve uh, the dreams that you wanted to do?
1: So I think the counselors I had in undergrad really helped me uh, see that this is... Um, the mathematics was a way, the smartest way for me to pursue medicine, just because one, yeah, it's it's hard to get into medical school, and your GPA, uh, extracurricular activities, everything um, is really highlighted. On top of taking the MCAT, the medical board exam to even get into medical school, and so the biggest focus was how can I make my application one stand out, uh, and also gain a skill set that I think math- being a mathematics. Uh, major or having a mathematics degree definitely gives me a certain level of skill in terms of critical thinking and just those kind of processes um, that you go through in the higher level mathematics classes. Uh, I think that that was what really helped me uh, tune in and set myself apart when I was applying to medical school. And so I, I honestly just the support system I had around me and the counselors at Penn State uh, really helped me to pursue this dream and then so I was able to fulfill my pre-medicine requisites at by being a biology minor so Mm -hmm. I went I I did the mathematics major biology minor completed my pre-med recs and then was still able to do what I enjoyed which was mathematics so I I definitely love the combination and even now uh, the the little bit of math that I get is when we do you know we do little calculations to figure out medication doses and then with physiology there comes a lot of mathematics just um, as far as what you do in the medical field so uh, there is an element where I do get to do some math but it's it's definitely not anything close to what I was doing in undergrad, but it still it still has some uh, uh, mathematics still has a place in my heart and uh, I do appreciate what it's been able to do for me as far as pursuing this career field.
0: Nice. And um, just just real quick if, if you can talk talk on this. For those for those of um, you listeners that don't know, uh, Penn State is a predominantly Caucasian student body. and as a person of color, Um, How how easy or how difficult was it for you to find counselors that were able to help you in um, achieving what you needed and getting the information that you did need to keep going forward?
1: Yeah, so I think that I had the right network coming in uh, because I received the academic uh, scholarship um, to come to Penn State. And it was for minorities. So uh, it was the Buttonwaller Fellowship Program. And automatically, they group you with other minorities who are also pursuing similar interests and in, whether it was the medical field, engineering. Um, there, there was a slew of um, minorities who had high pursuits that they grouped you with. So I think that for Penn State, it was easy in that sense to not necessarily find counselors, but find people of a similar background around me who are also pursuing the same interests. And I think that ultimately helped me a lot because to have a, you know, college, you have a lot of distractions for sure. And who you surround yourself with is going to make or break how well you do. And if it weren't for some of my closest friends I had around me during college, times, I probably would not have been as focused as I was, nor uh, been able to stay on track of uh, meeting these prerequisites that I needed for medical school and pursuing this career. So I think that it was easy in the sense of with Penn State being such a large institution and being a predominantly white institution, that me getting that scholarship and being partnered with you know, advisors within that scholarship program that were minorities, and then uh, having other minorities around me that were Black, Hispanic, um, and even Asians as well um, was very useful in making the process easier. I, I wouldn't imagine how it would have been if I weren't in that network of um, scholarship applicants who were pursuing similar degrees.
2: Yeah, that's that's really important. I work with a lot of young people, a lot of. Black and brown young people who are STEM focused and they are interested in STEM careers, and you know they get to college and they and they don't have that network and they don't have that support system, and and when you start reading through like you know statistics about persistence and STEM, you start to see a lot of uh, black and brown students sort of falling out of that STEM pipe, um, and you know I think having that support network, having that that those people around you really helps you persist in a lot of these institutions where you don't see a lot of other black and brown people. And um, I think that that's super important to, to just have people around you that can support you and help you stay on that that path because it's hard. And it's designed to weed people out, you know.
1: Yeah, very true. Very, very true. Now, I I definitely remember my freshman year, the number of people who wanted to become a doctor do the pre-medicine route that dropped out of those weed-out classes or just did not. They changed their mind after those initial chemistry and biology courses because they were definitely hard. I'm not going to sit here and act like I was making A's and B's. No, I got some C's. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And when it came to some of those math, higher level math classes, you know, as far as exam-wise, like I definitely was not a high floater. And it, it was hard, it was definitely hard. Um, and like you said, if you don't have the right people around you or mentors, cause there aren't a lot of black physicians or engineers, you don't see that in the news or in your everyday walk. Or even now when I walk into patient rooms and it's a black family, they'll say, oh, it's good to see you. And yeah. it's like the fact that we even get that—that—that that, that says a lot that uh, there aren't enough of us. And it's such a, a breath of fresh air to see when we see black physicians. Or I love mentoring and seeing other kids who want to pursue this career, or any STEM field, because it, there really is a need in that area.
2: So I wanted to to circle back um, to something you mentioned earlier, and it was that your your mom was really pushing you to become a doctor. Um, Do you feel like, like, where do you feel like her desire for you to
1: become a doctor came from? With my mom, um, her desire came from my desire. So she was more the mom who wanted us to pursue whatever our interests were. And once she saw what that was, or whatever we expressed to her as an interest, she was going to foster whatever that would be. So, um, my mom really pushed it because I honed in on it and I, I appreciate her for that. I think whatever choice I would have made in a career, she would have had a sit down conversation to make sure that this was what I really wanted, which is basically what she did. Um, when I, when I had the veterinary veterinarian versus, pediatrician talk with her and she basically said if there's a natural disaster and you know like Katrina or whatever we have a lot of natural disasters but if if there was a natural disaster do you think you'd be prone to saving the animals out there or saving the people and the kids and I was like no (laughs) that's a good question uh yeah I, I guess I'd probably be more prone to Saving the humans. Uh, Not to say that I still love animals. Uh, Not to say animals, you know, we need people who are looking out for the animals as well. But uh, I think that was, I just remember that conversation in particular and on the natural disaster note. And I said, yeah, I, I feel my gravitation toward helping the people. And I think that was the conversation that solidified it. So yeah, she was definitely very supportive. And of course, like I'm the first doctor in my family. so. That also, I guess, adds some like icing on the cake, like, man, we could finally have a doctor in the family too. So I'm sure uh, she enjoyed that element as well, but was always very supportive. And my dad as well, he he would have supported any decision I would have made, but definitely conversations with my mother helped guide me um, to the doctor aspect.
2: Yeah, I remember, I was on the, the sort of pre-med track in undergrad too. And at a point I was like, all right, I don't really want to do this. Like this isn't what I, I felt passionate about, and I had to have that conversation with my mom because she was really pushing for the the old doctor route. I'm like, I'm gonna go study anthropology now, uh, and it was like, what is that, and will you have a job <laughs> afterward? And I was like, I got this. Don't worry about it. Um, but you know that it's like when you when you think about careers, it's like doctor, lawyer. But like all of the other sort of sciencey careers, a lot of people don't recognize and don't understand (laughs) kind of that you can have a career, you know, being a conservation biologist or being, you know, uh, an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, there's lots of different careers out there, um, but it's (laughs) just there's not (laughs) enough awareness about various
1: options because it's always like doctor, lawyer, you know. Very true. Very true. Yeah. And, and I always one one reason I love that I was a mathematics major is that I could fall back to a lot of different careers. So I always say if I weren't a doctor, maybe I would teach. Maybe I would teach math or something. But also I I would have pursued maybe doing actual science uh, and went that route if I um really wanted another fallback out of the medical field. But I feel like you don't hear that every day or when someone says, oh, actual scientist. And I think, oh, there's some Black woman, you know, out there being an actual scientist. It's just not something that comes to mind, especially in a lot of these STEM fields. So I think you bring up a very good point that it's not talked about um, as far as astrophysicists or even that movie uh, Hidden Figures when it came out some years ago and seeing taraji play that role um was great to see like oh wow there were you know we was out here doing this and nobody knew you know yeah Yeah. we all hidden figures out here that's how i felt i was like man how many other hidden figures we got (laughs) don't know about you know it's it's, you know it's crazy but it's very true like we don't we don't talk about it enough and that push for the stem field like we you know it's, it's getting better that push but it's still not you know where its full potential could be to really get that word out and foster our kids. Yeah, and and just thinking about you personally, what what skills
2: or or characteristics do you feel were the most important for you to persist and you know become a, that medical doctor?
1: I think that really what I was saying earlier with work ethic and being focused um were really what was needed but also just something as simple as being able to say i need help is <laughs> probably the biggest skill if you want to call that a skill <laughs> uh is will take you far you know cuz i think that that's what the pressure is when you're pursuing this route is that pressure that oh you're going to be a doctor you're in medical school you got to know what you're doing and you know, a lot of these uh, students who get into the medical field, you know, they're used to either being at the top of their class or, you know, doing really well, have high GPAs, and they got into medical school, and everybody's on the same slate, and everyone's thinking, you know, you're afraid to say what your grade is on a test, or you don't want to talk about it out loud in case you get back. You don't want to be seen as a struggling student, but um, I think that's what specifically took me further, uh, or got me through with saying, I need help, I need tutoring. No, I'm not making the A's and B's on all these tests, I'm, I'm riding the struggle bus, and I need to get extra help to make sure that I'm understanding this material. And it was through my tutoring that I discovered, oh, this is how I need to study this material. Because again, that was the key, learning how to study the material based on how you think and how you navigate the world. So um, I think that asking for help and just being diligent were probably the two skills that uh, were really needed to get through. And and that even applies to me now while I'm in residency and uh, dealing with patients, I'm not going to act like I know, like just because I have doctor, you know, in front of my name now that uh, I know everything because I don't (laughs) and I'm in training. And when it comes to patients you know, this is the real deal now. Like in medical school, you know, you, you don't have that liability. Um, and even now, as a resident, you don't have full liability, but we still have a responsibility to, you know, manage my patients in the best way for them. And if I don't know something, I'm not going to tell a patient, like, you know, just try to talk yeah. my way out there. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, you know, I'm not completely sure on that. Let me go do a little bit more research and I'll get back to you. Uh, or let me go talk to one of my other colleagues and make sure that you know, you're informed about whatever this diagnosis is. And so I think that's something that trails just from, you know, the time you're an undergrad to medical school, to actually being a doctor, like we, we don't know everything. There's so much science and research out there and things are changing every day. And so being able to acknowledge that and uh, be pretty self-aware, I think those skills are what will get you far um,
2: with, it, with any career. Yeah, thanks for that. That's really important. The asking for help, it's its one of the hardest things for people to do, especially when they, they need it. Um, and so, you know, people shouldn't be ashamed to ask for help in all aspects of life because no one sort of does everything on their own. And you need people around you, you need support, you need a, a network um, that can support you and provide that help when you need it
1: exactly exactly
0: and as you mentioned asking for help uh seeking guidance um with being a person of color how, was that hard for you in, in terms of the people you act for help from did they respond to you in any way did they were anybody reluctant did they did people not want to help you and things of that nature. Was was it being, did getting the guidance you needed and being a person of color, was that any sort of
1: challenge at all? I would say yes and no. I feel like I had to go through a lot of people to see who my best fit was to help me. Um, And not that I felt like anything, anyone particular in some malignant way like oh because you're a minority um you know you're you're an african-american i'm not going to help you but i think that just our community alone um is just more likely to (laughs) help if that makes sense so you know if i reached out to um you know some of my black friends but you know the main people i hung with you know, they were always willing to help, and then I also had a, a group in medical school where I cu- called them my diverse friends. Like we were, um, there was black, white, um, Middle Eastern, Asian. You know, it was it was a a very diverse group, and they were always willing to help as well. And we would have study sessions um, and hang out. So I think that I just placed myself around people who I felt would. Help me and be the best support. Um and most of them were minorities. Um and you know, we naturally have a gravitation toward our own people, but uh I naturally I, I had a mix of both, but minority in the sense of all minorities, including um mm. Asians versus like the underrepresented minorities of just Hispanics and blacks. But I also had a group that was Middle Eastern um Asian, like just a mix of everything and and i think that that group um also helped me as well and made it an uh, easier process so i think that you know if you have the right discernment and realize who's around you who's for you who's against you i don't think anyone in at my medical school was necessarily malignant in that sense but uh we also uh, at the medical College of georgia had a very large minority population in terms of statistically across all medical schools. Like, I think my medical school was top 10 or something like that for the a number of percent of minorities that we even had at my school. So I think, again, I, I was lucky enough to be at a place that had enough support system for minorities um, to be able to do well and position myself with the right people. But had I maybe went to a more predominantly white school where, you know, I felt more isolated. Like I never felt very isolated, even though there were out of, you know, maybe the 200 medical students in my class, maybe right. 20 of us were black, <laughs> which isn't a lot, but in the sense of uh, having a network there, like 20, 20 black people all together, feels it feels right. like a lot even, even though in the grand scope of things, it really wasn't, yeah. <laughs> sadly, to, sadly to say uh, that, that that felt like a lot. So, um, so yeah, I think still we had the right, I, I had the right position of people around me and the Medical College of Georgia did really well increasing it, its diversity over the years that I was there. So when I was a, um, a first year medical student, like I said, my class had maybe 20 Black people, but... The fourth year class maybe had eight. And then the class that came behind me, it was doubled. So we went from like 20 to 40. And then the class after that it went from like maybe 40 to 50. so I'd say as far as that push to increase the minority presence at the medical college of Georgia, it definitely got better as the years went on. And and that's something I definitely appreciate them for, especially because that the patient population that we served were underserved, um, you know, the underserved area. So we need, you know, more minorities um, present. And so uh, I think that I've just been blessed in that sense to be surrounded uh, by a community that had those resources for me.
2: And you're a a resident at Advocate Children's Hospital in Chicago. Um, What would you say how would you say the the current pandemic has impacted your work and your interactions with patients?
1: Yeah, so it's been quite interesting um, navigating all of this throughout the pandemic. i definitely say in the pediatric world, it's not, the burden is there, but it's definitely not felt as much as the adults just because kids aren't getting affected as severely as as the adults are, but it's definitely changed our workflow a lot. So early in the pandemic, when we didn't know, you know, the the initial complete shutdown, you know, our numbers for, you know, pediatrics, we didn't see nearly as much as we normally did. So my hospital is actually the second busiest children's hospital in the Chicago area. Um, And we went, from being very busy to (laughs) not busy at all, which I think is good because parents were being more cautious about what they were bringing their kids to the hospital for. Um, And so when we, but with that being said, the patients that we did have come in were very sick if they came to us during the pandemic. So I think that it was a good contrast to kind of see um, the, the very sick kids, but then also just our workflow at the hospital with, you know, wearing PPE and face shields and a mask. I mean, we had guidelines changing every day at some point every week, uh, as far as do we need just a mask? Do we need to gown and glove? Do we need the N95s? Do we need the face shield? Uh, Are we allowed to, there was some point where they weren't allowing residents to go into COVID rooms versus allowing, you know, it it was just, there's just been a lot of changes over this past year uh, that, have really made an impact on our workflow. And even even now, like we, my program, at least we didn't get our first residents with COVID until maybe about seven months into the pandemic, which I think was really lucky on our part. But after that, um, you know, we've had residents who've had COVID. Um, and so I'm really happy that we're making strides at least to get the, the vaccine, but it's definitely affected our workflow and my conversations with patients as far as, you know, should I send my kid to daycare? Like, you know, there's more fear now. You know, kids get fevers all the time. Like, that's just very normal. When <laughs> I mean, kids get infected, you could have an ear infection, have a fever. You could be teething mm-hmm. as a baby and have a fever. So it's just certain things, conversations that we have to have, even when it comes to vaccines and um, parents just, you know, trying to make sure they're doing right by their kids. It's, it's definitely, Changed a lot in terms of that. And, you know, it's, it's, it was initially very scary. Uh, I will say it was very scary, especially knowing being a healthcare worker that my exposure risk is higher. Um, so I definitely, I remember when I was seeing my first few COVID cases months ago, uh, earlier this year, you know, my heart beating fast while I'm putting on my mask and gowning up and, you know, just like, man, could I, you know, what risk am I putting myself at? And uh, so now I don't have as much of that fear, you know, it's just, Hey, we're in it and we're doing what we have to do, but I can definitely say it's been quite a, quite a journey to see, you know, definitely on the Pete side, like there's um the syndrome, a lot of kids who get, they, I've seen kids with COVID, but then there's also the syndrome, MISC, that kids get after they've had COVID That's we've been seeing a lot of, uh, and I think that that's, you know, something that's maybe not as talked about as much as, you know, these adult deaths and the cases and things like that, but overall, kids aren't getting affected, but I, I do think that, you know, seeing these kids and just the way super spreader- <laughs> works with, oh, my uncle got COVID and then now all the kids in the house have COVID. I think the youngest I've seen is a two-week-old maybe who had COVID and will get 18, you know, 18 all the way from two two weeks, you know, in the newborn phase all the way up to teenagers, preteens. Uh, I feel like I've seen every age range get it and, and it affects everybody differently. Um, but uh, I am uh, glad that it's not affecting kids as rapidly <laughs> and as bad as, you know, what we've seen on the adult side. So I'm just, you know, grateful to do what I can and do my part, but, it, you know, as far as the hospital workflow, it's, it's definitely had an effect. And, and I just hear stories from, you know, my adult medicine counterparts and, and it's, you know, it's sad a lot of the time, but then, there was a time where, you know, at my hospital, we would play a little jingle on, on the intercom system whenever we had a COVID patient leave the hospital and finally be able to be discharged. And so that was a time where it was like, man, despite all this, whenever I'd hear that jingle on the intercom system, I'm like, yeah, okay, another person gets to leave the hospital who had co- you know, was admitted for COVID. So, you know, it's it's finding the little things um and just being grateful for that. Um, uh, but it's it's definitely not easy to to be on the front lines but um but definitely uh, i send my prayers to all the adult medicine workers who really have to deal with the elderly population um because i think that the nursing homes and uh, long-term facility care those patients the number of deaths they they make up about 40 percent of them which is a lot so um, I definitely, uh, have seen a lot of changes for sure. And everyday workflow with that.
0: We've seen, we've seen all this. And like you said, you know, you've had a plethora of emotions, you know, whether it be you being scared for your own safety, uh, your, your coworkers safety and feeling, uh, you know, sad and, and worried for the, the patients themselves. How how does how how do you keep from taking certain cases and patients uh, personal?
1: I would say, you know, that one's. I feel like a good, you know, a good doctor. There's a level where you can't avoid that personal aspect of it hitting you. Um, and it's really whatever support system you have in your personal life that will get you through that. I mean, I definitely had patients even outside of COVID and pre-pandemic where they were just really sick in the ICU and it really hits home. We deal with a lot of cancer patients and you you just see some really sick kids that come in and, and sometimes it hits a lot harder when it is kids. Like, it's like, man, you still have a whole life to live. Um, and so there is always a level of you know, taking it personal that can happen, but um, but that's also why, you know, I'm personally interested in ICU medicine and dealing with the sickest of the sick, just because sometimes, uh, you know, I like the thought of being that support system through uh, such a difficult time when you are in a hospital and you, you're you scared, you don't know what's going to happen next, and being able to be a source of comfort through that is what I re- one of the aspects of being a doctor that I, I really enjoy. So um, I think having my own strong support system at home is what kind of keeps me sane, just Mm -hmm. something as simple as when I leave the hospital, just being able to talk to somebody while I'm driving home just to decompress uh, always does me well, or just listening to some music just to clear my mind, or even at work. I, I. consider myself the designated DJ whenever I'm on a shift. So just even the music that we play just in the background while we're doing work and between seeing patients, it makes a difference in just the atmosphere uh, around. And and of course, when you're dealing with kids, like you have to have a certain level of, you know, spunk regardless, because kids are very resilient and they will smile through what you would probably cry through (laughs) as an adult. So, you know, I, I think that um, again, a good support system is just what kind of gets gets you through the day-to-day. And then being open and having open conversation about, you know, some of these woes that come with being in this field, especially during this pandemic, um, or even earlier this year when it was a lot of the, you know, George Floyd and uh, racial tension, and then dealing with the election, Trump, you know, the political climate, you know, and you have to go into work and put that stuff aside and treat no matter what the race of your patient is exactly the same, you know, it's, it's, it can be a lot. And so being able to be open, even with my colleagues, my work colleagues, um, as well as, you know, having people at home who I can talk to it's, it's what gets me through and has helped through this pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what the schedule
2: is like for a resident um, and then how you sort of manage your work and social life around that, that schedule.
1: Yeah. So it is what they say <laughs> as far as long hours and uh crazy, crazy work hours. So every residency program is going to be a little bit different on like the day to day, but the general flow is that you have rotations. And so rotations can be anywhere from two to four weeks. Most of the time it's a one month rotation and you basically Go to different areas of the hospital. So, as a pediatric resident, we'll work in the NICU, we'll work in the newborn nursery, we'll work on the general floors, in the ICU, in the pediatric emergency room. We'll do outpatient clinic, uh, and then we'll do other electives, which can be in, you know, pediatric endocrinology, pediatric nephrology, pediatric pulmonology. Like you, you basically spend a month, two weeks to a month, um, in all of these rotations and each rotation has different hours. So when you're inpatient, your hours are going to be longer. Um, you can work 12 to 24 to 28 hour shifts, depending on where, uh, which area of the hospital you're working in. And that's basically the general workflow. And so, you know, when you come, if you're inpatient, you're going to come in, it's what you see on TV. You know, you, you round on your patients and then you do all the day-to-day ordering labs or whatever medical management you feel is needed. Coordinating care. You may be talking to different subspecialists, coordinating, you know, oh, this patient needs to go to surgery. Let me talk to the surgeons. And then let me talk to anesthesia. Let me talk to radiology. And it's, it's basically a lot of care coordination. But then uh, as a resident, you also have didactic teaching sessions. So every week there's designated time, like for my program on Tuesday, we have four hours of lectures on pediatric medicine, pediatric topics. Um, And then you also have other smaller teaching sessions throughout the day. Um, So they try to factor in a lot of teaching and then there's a lot of hands-on learning when you're just seeing patients. Uh, And that's the general workflow. As far as maintaining a social life with that, So. You know, your intern year is probably a lot of times your busiest, just because you do all the "quote unquote" grunt work. So you're writing notes in between seeing patients. You're the first line of, you know, taking calls, taking pages on patients. But then, as you get to your senior years, you're more so transitioning to managing the team, um, and so that is where it's a little bit different. And your hours are. Um, They're still the same, but as far as the amount of work that you have to do while you're working, it just shifts gears a little bit from like, I'm trying to figure things out as an intern, like my intern year, you know, trying to figure out like, how do I put in an order? How do I order Tylenol? (laughs) Like something so simple, you would think it's so simple, but it's just like, okay, do I need to give this kid Tylenol? And if they need it, you know, do I need to order this or who do I contact? Like it's A lot of times the intern year is just figuring out how to manage the system uh, and then once you transition more into your senior years, you can um, you can dive a little bit more in depth on a lot of the medicine that that comes behind it. Uh, and you get to learn in different ways while either, you know, you're teaching and giving back, you learn by teaching somebody else something. So the benefits of being a senior, um, and even your intern year, we have medical students who rotate at the hospital as well. So you get to teach medical students, you get to teach the interns. And then um, there, there are different ways to kind of stay engaged and focused. Um, but I think that the support system um, that we have is good to kind of get through the, the crazy hours that we work. So I'm not gonna sit here and say I wasn't, I was tired a lot my intern year uh, where i just come home and fall asleep let's see, sit down on the couch to eat dinner. And then next thing I knew, I woke up and it was like three in the morning just because I fell asleep on the couch from the long hours. But, um, but yeah, it, it transitions. It's, it's definitely a system that, you know, I understand why, you know, back in the day we had long hours, but they've really been pushing physician wellness as a requirement for a lot of residency programs where we have to have wellness activities factored in. So my program, we have wellness days we do wellness activities. If it's the end of one of our rotation blocks, they try to have end of block happy hours. You know, Of course, things are a little bit different now that we're in a pandemic and the wellness activities have been cut short. But <laughs> at least with me being here in Chicago, I've been able to you know, have a small network and find activities in the city that pre-COVID I was able to do to keep myself sane, whether it was festivals, spoken word. Open mic nights, um, just going out to Lake Michigan and chilling lakeside, and just enjoying the fresh air. Um, going out to a restaurant. There, there was a lot of stuff in that realm that helped keep me sane and get me through, uh, and still have like good wellness throughout uh, working all these long and crazy hours.
0: How stressful! <laughs> <laughs> sounds stressful! I, I don't know if I would be that uh but that's off to you but so <laughs> what does your hold for Tahira West
1: yeah so after residency I say I'm interested in ICU medicine so I would love to do a pediatric ICU fellowship uh and so for pediatrics you do three years of Um, residency training. And then most of our fellowship uh, to further subspecialize, most of those fellowship programs are another three years. So uh, I would do a pediatric ICU fellowship is hopefully my goal. Uh, And when I apply in a couple years and then, yeah, hopefully I can be a pediatric intensivist and work And whatever hospital system the the road takes me on and ultimately deal with the sick, sick kids. Uh, And I think that I will, yes, work in an ICU, but I also want to do some administrative and kind of outreach work on the backside. So, um, and deal with like a lot of ethics, like I feel like the ICU and dealing with these sick kids, there's a lot of ethics that comes along with it, especially when it comes to different genetic disorders and parents having to navigate that aspect and what's right for their children. Uh, so I definitely want to do some administrative roles in the hospital to help be on committees and just kind of help with uh, things in that area while also treating just some, uh, some of those critical kids that come into the hospital.
0: And Do you have any needs for others pursuing their dreams in this line of work?
1: Yeah. So definitely reaching out and I I think being proactive about finding a mentor and somebody who can help guide you through this process. And how I was saying earlier, surrounding yourself with the right people who are within that network and this network and um, can help keep you on track, I think is the most important thing. So even if you're in high school and you're thinking about this career, there are a lot of uh, physicians offices that will allow high school students just come in and shadow and networking is key. So I think that if you can find, you know, either a clinic or if you meet a doctor and you ask about, you know, what resources they have or ask if they can be a mentor, answer your questions, find a medical student, a resident, an attending, whoever, who can help guide you through the process or someone just in the STEM field. Most, a lot of, um, people know each other, like our, our network is, you know, we have a big network, but it's small, you know, we're in a small world. So I think that surrounding yourself and, and being proactive. And again, if you're in school already asking for help, and, and a lot of those things we already talked about uh, is what's going to get you through and understanding that you won't know everything. You're not going to know everything and you're not meant to it's, it's meant to be a process where you work with people to, get you through, you need to rely on those around you to, to go far in life. So I think building a good support system and having that is what's going to take you far and not being afraid to say, I need help, I think are like the key things.
0: Awesome. So I would like to take this time to thank you, Dr. DeGarel West, for joining us on this podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's been a pleasure. Um, and for all of the listeners, follow us and leave us comments on Instagram and Facebook at Giving Space Podcast, on Twitter at Giving Space Pod. Listen and leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all other major streaming platforms. Until next time, this has been Giving Space Podcast. I'm Nick Martinez. And I'm
0: Julian Boney.
2: Till next time.